This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this week's Q&As. Nothing special to announce, so let's jump right into it. First up, over on Floatplane, Blazin Zeddy wanted to chime in about Jason Guffey's question regarding using a Tendac HDMI to VGA adapter on a VGA PC monitor. So basically, this was talking about putting higher resolutions out of an HDMI signal into a VGA monitor that could support them. My advice was basically check the specs and make sure it could support that. And if it can, give it a try just to see what happens. And do not try it if it cannot support those. So Blazin Zeddy said they have a ViewSonic G225F and based on the monitor on the manual it says it supports 1600 by 1200 up to 85 hertz and 1920 by 1440 up to 75 hertz they don't have a RetroTINK 5x but they do have an OSSC that was able to run at 1200p uh, no problem and there's also uh, they've also hooked up a PC using 1200p at 85 hertz and 1920 by 440 at 60, which seemed to work, although they weren't able to get it running at 75 hertz. So it seems to me that that should be confirmation that sending a 1920 by 1440 signal to this monitor would actually work from the RetroTank 5X. Uh, I'm very curious to see how that looks, though. Um, and I'm not, I'm certainly by no means trying to dissuade you from doing it. Maybe that'll look absolutely outstanding. Um, but if you want a true RGB monitor look, running it at 480p with scan lines on would probably be the better way to go about it. But I've never tested 1440p on a CRT. So maybe I'm wrong. Maybe that'll look absolutely insane. But try it and, you know, snap some cell phone pictures if you can, you know, just. Uh, post them on Imgur or something and just label them properly, you know, to just make sure, hey, test of this, you know, not for comparison use or something like that, just to make sure people don't get the wrong idea. But uh, I'm definitely interested in seeing how that all goes. So uh, good luck to you, Jason, from last week. Maybe when I get over to Patreon, you've already answered that. And thanks very much to Blaze and Zeddy for chiming in. Blaze and Zeddy also had a question that I don't have a good answer for, and I would love the answer to this question as well. Blaze and Zeddy wants to buy a ROM dumper specifically for NES, SNES, and N64 games. Uh, I would also love a device like that that's reliable, that I can get solid dumps across as many different types of cartridges as possible, and... Um, there's definitely stuff out there, but as the point Blaze and Zeddy made, they're either out of production devices or do-it-yourself devices. And I would also just love to buy something that I could plug into a computer and use an easy-to-click software, something GUI-based. doesn't have to be fancy, but I don't want to type in a, you know, a 500-character command line to every time I want to dump a save file or something like that. So... I know that there's been stuff out there. There there was the retro devices. People have hacked Retron 5s. The analog devices, if you use the jailbreak firmware, could do that stuff too. So um, honestly, if anybody has a good, solid recommendation for multiple carts, I'm all ears because I think there's some one-offs and that's fine as long as they're available. Like I, I would be okay buying a couple of individual ones for each cartridges, but I would love something like 
a Retron 5 that all it does is dump carts and save game files and stuff like that. Uh, I mean, maybe that is actually the answer. Maybe the cheapest, uh, the cheapest possible solution is to buy a Retron 5 and hack it or something, but... Please, uh, anybody out there who has a good solution, let me know both uh, both to help Blaze and Zeddy and because I'd also really like one myself. The importer wants to know what most people use in their PlayStation 2s to prevent a hard drive from bobbling. They can't find any tricks except to put a piece of cardboard in it. Does anyone make 3D printed brackets for these? I'm 99% sure a 3D bracket is already in the works for it. And of course, as soon as it's released, I'll do a full write-up and all that stuff. Um, I don't think I've ever actually used anything for mine, though, which I know isn't great if you're using mechanical hard drives that are spinning. I probably should have gotten some kind of bracket or support for it, but I switched to using SSDs quite a long time ago because as soon as they get cheap, pretty much, is when I switched over, and I just plug that directly in. I have one of those kits that converts it from IDE to SATA, and then I just plug the SSD directly in, and I don't think it's heavy enough to really make a difference. And of course, it's, you know, obviously no moving parts in that. And I've seen a lot of people use uh, SD to SATA converters in there, so there's almost no weight at all and no leverage. So they're both, you know, both of those are safer than using a full mechanical hard drive, uh, I think for now a piece of cardboard should be good enough because it's non-conductive and all that stuff. But I do think that a 3D printed bracket would make the most sense. And I'll let everybody know as soon as one's released. But I, I also am not too worried about using my SATA drive, my SATA SSD the way I do because it's just not putting much leverage on it. It's not much weight. Um, and especially if you, depending how you orient your PS2, it might even be less weight if you put it standing up. Uh, although at that point it might slowly start to pull off the connector. So yeah, a bracket is a good idea either way, but, uh, I don't think anything exists yet. I will obviously post as soon as I find anything out. And if I'm wrong and if something does exist, please someone let me know, post in the comments or something. Frey wants to know if I have any recommendations for upscaling 480p, specifically original Xbox and PlayStation 2, to a higher resolution on a flat panel TV. They currently have both consoles connected via component cables to the component input on the TV. They have seen some Reddit threads that say get a good component to HDMI converter and then use the M cable from the converter to the HDMI input on the TV. Does that sound viable? Okay, so there's a few things about that. Um, first of all, most people who recommend the M cable just do so because they heard somebody else recommend it. I get tons of hate every time I talk about this. And sometimes I get hate from people that understand how to use the M cable and really know how to benefit from it. And, and I do feel bad in those cases, but in most cases, it's just people repeating YouTubers who tell you to get an M cable. I would never really recommend it in most scenarios. And for your two scenarios that you're talking about here, original Xbox and PS2, there's two completely different scenarios going on. So let's start with original Xbox. You could set that to 480p output and pretty much every game is compatible. There's a few 480i only games, but if you have a modded Xbox, you could patch them or, or use any other kind of method to get to force 480p, but there's only a few other games out there that are 480i only. So in that case, yes, go to the link in the Amazon store that I always put in these videos, uh, and then buy any basic component to HDMI converter, one that does not say scaling on it anywhere. You just want basically an ADC, analog to digital converter. Those add zero lag. I proved that in a bunch of different videos. And that allows you to get 480p to the HDMI input of your TV. 
So why the heck would you want to do that if your TV's got component inputs? Every TV I've tested adds more lag through their analog video inputs than they do through HDMI. Now, that doesn't mean that every TV will. It's just every TV I've tested. So I feel like that's a good practice. And if you're already happy with everything, in the case of the Xbox, I don't know if I would even bother doing that if it's already working for you and everything's okay. Now, in the case of the PlayStation 2, most of that library is 480i. So if you just pass that analog to digital into your flat panel, you're going to add a ton of lag on 99% of all flat panels out there because the way they process uh, interlaced signals is always going to take a lot more time than just regular progressive scan signals. This is another thing I've tested time and time and time again. So you would want some kind of deinterlacer. Uh, for both of those consoles, you could pick up a RetroTINK 2XM, the multi-format, because it will deinterlace 480i to the Bob deinterlacing, which is a little shaky, but does not too big of a deal for most people. And it'll also pass through 480p and 720p. However, um, if you buy the RetroTINK 5X, not only will you be able to get that from analog to digital, it has motion and adaptive deinterlacing, which looks great with the PlayStation 2, and you could go to much higher resolutions. Uh, you can go to 1080p or even 1440p, and depending on what TV you're using, um, you might... Uh, you might need to worry about different settings. Uh, it looks like the second part of your question said the TV you're using is a 1080p TV. So the RetroTINK 5X is probably the way to go when it comes back in stock in a, a few weeks, a month, whatever it is, because you could just plug it in and update it to the newest firmware and never touch it. And in uh, 1080p fill mode, everything will look great. You could mess around with the other modes if you would like to, but you basically just plug your consoles in and you never have to worry about it again. Now, you mentioned aspect ratios. The RetroTINK 5X should take care of this for you. You asked specifically about the M cable. Uh, I don't know. I never really get that thing working right. In a couple of modes, it, it squishes it, and you have to set the aspect ratio on your TV. In other modes, it seems to work fine. There's There doesn't seem to be a rhyme or reason for this, but part of that is my TV. Uh, the main TV that I use to test this stuff is weird with aspect ratios, and sometimes... There's no way to fix it other than to turn the TV off and back on again. So maybe my aspect ratio complaints are my, or the combination of the M cable and my TV, not just the M cable. Uh, but I don't, as long as you have a TV that has aspect ratio settings, you should not have to worry. Even that monitor that I have that I'm, I'm looking at right now that I thought didn't have aspect ratio settings does. It's just buried in a weird menu. So that shouldn't be an issue. But once again, not to, not to beat this to death, if you are looking at an M cable, you should really understand what that does. And I think most people wouldn't want to bother with that at all once they learned uh, what its use is actually for versus an, a scaler that's designed to do things like deinterlace 480i properly. I don't think the M cable deinterlaces anything at all anyway. I think you would have to convert that signal to 480p or 720p for that to make a real difference. So in your setup with original Xbox and PS2, I would say RetroTINK 5X or just, you know, a cheap analog, or, or I guess just leave it as is and see if you're happy with it as is, fine. But I think a RetroTINK 5X is by far the better choice than the M cable for what you're talking about. And once again, my I don't hate the M cable. I just hate 
how certain YouTubers say that it's the solution to all your problems when it's really the solution to one or two very specific issues. So uh, hopefully I didn't offend you. I would just always try to be open and honest. And if you're pissed, I'd rather have you be pissed for, for advice I can give as best as I possibly can than, than anything else. So hopefully I pointed you in the right direction without upsetting you. Curtis Singer was looking to test their BNC to SCART cable to make sure that the line was attenuated to the correct voltage. And this is for situations like you're coming out of an Extron crosspoint going into any SCART device. You can't just take the sync level directly. You need to drop down that voltage. And in order to do that, there's a couple of ways to test. But basically, first, you stick your multimeter probe. Any multimeter can do this, even the cheapest ones. Stick your probe on the, the sync pin. And I believe if it's going BNC to SCART, it's pin 20, the top right one. Uh, and then just stick your other pin on the sync line on the in the center of the BNC cable. So, that, you know, just the signal pin. If it beeps, there's nothing on there. If you see a resistance level on your multimeter, which depending on your meter, you might need to change to a slightly different setting. But if you see a resistance level that's around 470, you're fine. It could be 600, it could be 300, whatever. As long as it's around 470-ish, you should have voltage that's in the safe target range, and that's fine. So you wouldn't need to open it up at all. Now, if you put your probes on the end and it doesn't beep and you don't get a, a, a solid resistance rating or it's weird, then you would need to open it up to make sure there isn't something like a sink stripper in it. And in your case, I, I seriously doubt that would ever be made that way for uh, the cable you bought from Retro Access. It's just one of these things where if anybody listening has one of those and they just want to make sure, you know, just pop it open and make sure there isn't a circuit in there. And if there is, you could probably just remove the circuit, connect the sync line to a resistor and the resistor to the SCART head. Uh, unfortunately, though, Curtis said they didn't want to open up the SCART head. I'm sorry if I miscommunicated that and made you feel like you had to open it up. You could certainly just test. Uh, but they purchased a breakout board that breaks the signals, each of the signals of the SCART connector out. This is actually designed for oscilloscopes. Uh, you could still use it this way if you'd like. You could still plug it in and, and hold your probe to it. But I don't think you would have needed it to accomplish everything. Because if you don't get a beep or a resistance rating, you'd still have to pop the head open anyway. And once again, I'm pretty positive yours is going to be fine. But if you've already purchased this, uh, this could be used for benchtop testing. You would still need to put 75 ohm termination on the output side if you wanted to use it with an oscilloscope. But that's really just designed for scopes. So you could hook your pin or your, uh, your probe around the pins and not have to worry about messing with inside SCART heads and stuff like that. Uh, I think I have the exact same one, and it uh, it seems to work great. It just may have been overkill, but it's not like you bought the wrong thing. You just may not have needed it. So hopefully I pointed you in the right direction, and even if you didn't need it, now you have a cool new toy to mess with should you ever need it. Victor is Perfect seems to be having a weird sync issue when playing PS2 gun con games through their specific setup. And the setup is a PS2 with a Sync on Luma RGB SCART cable that has the composite video port on it, so you could plug in your light gun. And that goes into a G-SCART switch, presumably with the Sync Stripper turned on, into an Extron Crosspoint, because uh, those require Sync Strippers, and then split from there into CRTs and the FrameMeister. And everything looks fine on the CRT, but it kind of drives the FrameMeister crazy. So... There's a few issues with that setup, but I think the most telling sign is that they said when they use the same setup on their PlayStation 1, GunCon games look fine on both. It's only when using the PlayStation 2. 
So step one definitely would be unplug that cable from your PS1, plug it in your PS2, and see what happens. The only difference between those cables is the capacitors, and that's not really a safety thing. Uh, so, or it's not really something you have to worry about, especially for testing. You might get artifacts on the screen, but it's not going to be the same thing that you're talking about. And for a five-minute test, I, I wouldn't worry about that anyway. So that would be step one. If you plug in your PS1 cable into your PS2 and it works, get another PS2 cable, open yours up to check and see if there's a short or something like that. But if you're still having issues after using that cable, there's a few other things to check. First and foremost, what are you using to go from the cross point to your framemeister? Do you have a BNC discard adapter? And like I just talked about, does it have the proper resistor in there to drop the voltage down? Um, and if not, you're going to want to look into that because at worst, it could blow out your framemeister eventually. And at best, it might end up just with weird sync issues like this. So that's, I would think that if that was the problem, it would do it on all PlayStation 2 games, but who knows? Um, especially too, because you're using a sync on Luma cable and you're plugging the GunCon adapter into the composite port of the cable. So unless the cable is actually sync on composite, but even in that case, those things were designed so that they're not really splitting the video signal. It's not like you're putting a Y cable on, which is very bad for video signals. It's really just tapping the sync information and it's not putting a full load on it. At least that's the, the description that it was told to me by people who are smarter than me. So that does make sense though. The only other thing you were talking about is messing around with sync strippers between the GunCon port or getting one of those cables that has a sync stripper built in, which are advertised as C-Sync PlayStation cables. I don't really like that advertising because technically, yes, that's true, but you don't need a sync stripper in 99.9% .9 of situations. This is one of the few that you do, though. The cross points do require it. So the only other thing is which revision of the G-SCART switch are you using? Uh, if you have one of the really older ones, it probably has a basic sync stripper in it. If you have one of the newer ones, it uses FPGA sync regeneration. And if you have, I believe, 2020 and on, there's two different sync options. So if you have the latest one with the multiple sync options, toggle all those dip switches and see if it makes a difference. It's a completely safe and free thing to try. So maybe that should be the second thing to try as well. But I definitely would not recommend getting anything with the sync stripper built in it as the solution. Um, you really want to figure out what the issue is elsewhere. But my gut's telling me something's probably up with your cable. Uh, but please report back and let me know because I'm kind of curious about this one. Door-to-door -door geek Stephen McLaughlin has two quick comments. About open source licensing and selling an item, money has nothing to do with the license, it's distribution. Once you distribute something that originates from something like GPL, then you have to show the source and give credit. Money's not part of that license. Second, about affiliate link stuff, 99% of the time going to the link sets a cookie. The affiliate code will remain in that cookie till cash is cleared or another affiliate cookie is set or a given amount of time has been passed. Most browsers, it's 30 days, I believe. Thank you so much for the clarification on the cookie stuff. Um, I, I hope that that's how it works because that's kind of fair. But what happens if, and I don't, I don't care about this from like a make sure to do it right point of view, but from a nerd point of view, I'm very curious about what happens if you click on my link to a, I don't know, 
uh, a new microphone, and then you watch another review for a second opinion, which is always a smart thing to do, and you click on their link, and now both of the links and both of the cookies are in there, what happens? So I don't really care about that from a make sure to only click on my link perspective. I just, as a nerd, I I always want to know the answer to these things because I'm curious. Um, so thanks very much for clarification on that stuff. Uh, and if I ever learn more and there's more definitive answers to all of these silly things, I would absolutely love to do something on it. I don't know. Put a, put a description at the end of the support page that just describes how this stuff works because I know that there's other nerds out there that want to know the answers to this stuff. So thanks for chiming in. Per Kimba is looking for a recommendation for an NTSC N64 S-Video cable. And the ones I've been using recently are from Insurrection Industries. I'll leave the link below. And they seem to work great. I bought two of them, one for each output of the Nintendo DS, the Nitro DS box, because you need one for each screen. And they seemed fine. I had tested them previously, and one had an issue, but I think they got their QA solved for that, and they're a pretty safe buy. So that's a good recommendation. If you need a PAL one, I know that Consoles for You sells it specifically for PAL. And depending on where you're located, you might even want to reach out to that other store and see... Uh, see if they also have NTSC versions of it. But either way, I'll leave links to both below. Uh, but either should be good. I know Retro Access used to make them, but I think they're having part source issues, just like everybody else on the planet. So that's probably why when you looked, it wasn't there. But theirs is also excellent as well if you ever end up purchasing it. So hopefully those are some decent recommendations. And thank you for the kind words at the beginning. Matt Barton wants to know what I think of interviewing Stephanie Allaire. My honest answer to that is the exact same as if you'd named any other awesome member of the retro gaming community, and that's absolutely yes, as long as time allows for both of us, and if there's some kind of promotion or product involved, I would like to do that whenever it's best to promote that product. So the best example, like the last interview I did with Mike Chi right after the Retro Tank 5X was released... Um, that was perfectly timed because it, we got to talk about the product that was out there. If I had done that interview three weeks earlier before the product was released, what could we really talk about? So, um, you know, it's just basic stuff like that. You know, what's is the timing right? I always would rather do in-person interviews, but with everything going on today, that's probably not likely for quite a while longer anyway. So uh, there's a lot of people in the retro gaming scene that I've been wanting to interview, but I know we're going to run into each other at some point and there's no time limit on it. There's no like product coming out now. So I just figured it would be cooler to wait till we're sitting in, in front of each other, you know, with a, a basic camera setup and some microphones. Um, I believe Stephanie is on the West coast in a, Canada, not the U.S. Uh, I don't think that's doxing. I think that's pretty general of a, <laughs> of a geographical area. <laughs> but uh, so it's probably likely that we would just do it over uh, over the internet anyway. But uh, yeah, I mean, absolutely. Anybody, any awesome creator in the retro gaming scene, I want to talk to. And I've also reached out to a ton of people that it just didn't work out. And I didn't take offense to it. I, I don't think it was intentional. I just think it was, hey, you know, you want to do a podcast? Yeah, sure. What about Friday? And then Thursday night, I get a, can you move it to Monday? Sure. Monday's like, hey, you know what? This week's crazy. I'll message you in a couple of weeks. And then I never hear back from him again. And it's just, I don't, I don't think it's ever intentional. I just think people live very crazy and busy lives, especially us fellow nerds, you know, who are always buried into a project. Uh, so yeah, short answer. Yes, of course I would be interested. I I've talked to her plenty of times on discord. Um, I just got to find the time to do it. 
she has to find the time to do it, and we're going to pick when's best for the launch of her new product, uh, which looks like you may have asked this question before I posted the write-up on it, but check Retro RGB and check last week's podcast, because uh, I do talk directly about that new crazy thing that she designed. So I um, I don't want to reiterate it here, because I'm not even sure I have 100% of a grasp on it yet, so check out the post, I guess, for the best info. Cam is looking for a recommendation for an RGB SCART cable to use on a Nintendo 64. Um, So there's a couple of different answers to this, but the short answer is pretty much any cable from a reputable reseller will be fine. Um, If the one you picked up, uh, as it looks like you mentioned, is sync on composite video, that's great. Um, some, Some background on this, though. There's been some confusion lately about sync and what to use and why and as usual there's a lot of misinformation because some people are talking from the perspective of a designer and a modder and other people are talking from the perspective of a user and then you know it gets confused but basically if you buy any cable from a reputable reseller especially any of the links that have ever been on retro rgb it's a good safe cable to use you don't have to worry about anything uh, basically, if it works when you got it, it, it 99.9% sure it'll be fine. If you don't know what to get, just get a SCART, SCART cable that syncs on composite video because you don't have to worry about extra components. So here's a quick example. Every Almost every RGB SCART cable needs components inside of it because cable manu- or console manufacturers wanted to save money and they said, all right, we're going to make 40 million of these things do we really need an extra 20 cents in uh, a worth of components in each one for a feature that 1% of people are going to be using? So I totally agree. So they put the components in the SCART cable for RGB, whereas you don't need anything for a composite cable. You just need to pass the signal through. Now, sometimes you could run into issues on the RGB lines if the components aren't properly made. Most of the time it's just video artifacts and stuff like that, but there could be safety issues. But the biggest difference is if you plug in your, you know, terrible AliExpress SCART cable and all of a sudden everything is so bright the image is blown out, you're probably going to turn it off right away because that's a sign that okay, you know, it's too bright, that's probably sending too much voltage, the cable's a piece of junk. I should have never bought it for I should have never expected a $2 cable to work. But you can't really often see sync issues. So if you get a cable that's outputting really high sync voltage, you won't know until your device dies and you go, why did my SCART device just die? It could take years. It could take days. I don't really know. It depends on the level of voltage and all that stuff. So that's why people say just use sync on composite video because you don't ever have to worry because all the components are already in in the console side of it. So even if the cable is still really built really badly, you're not going to blow anything out. 99.9999, sure. I should never say never, but you're probably going to just plug it in and go, oh, the cable's bad, I'll get another one. So that's kind of the recommendation. The only downside to using composite video as sync uh, is you could get some color inf- uh, information mixed in, so you end up with kind of a jail bar-like pattern or a checkerboard pattern on screen if you have badly shielded cables or if you put it through cheap equipment. So junky cheap SCART switches are, would be the equivalent to unshielded cables. So now even though if you plug your your shielded composite sync, composite video S-Sync SCART cable into your 
OSSC, it looks perfect, but you put this crappy switch in the middle, now you have the same composite video interference as if you bought a cheap cable. So that's why people would recommend going down to using Luma as sync if it's available from the console. But then you run into the situation of going to non-SCART devices. So not SCART scalers, not TVs with a SCART port, but stuff like Extron crosspoint switches, certain RGB monitors that require pure just C-Sync. And that's why I've always just kind of said, well, if the cable's built properly, just get sync on C-Sync because it's going to be safe to use and everything and you never have to worry about compatibility or interference. But as long as they're built correctly. So all the information that's been going around is rooted in correctness, but it's as always getting scrambled. And I'm going to go into a bit more detail with visual examples in this video to hopefully explain this. But to answer your direct question, um, your sync on composite video SCART cable from your N64 or even your Super Nintendo going through a G-SCART switch split to a BVM and a flat panel is the perfect scenario right there. If for whatever crazy reason you ever change your BVM to use a different production monitor that requires C-Sync, flip the switch on your G-SCART. And the G-SCARTs are all built great. I've tested the heck out of them with composite video as sync cables. I show that in the, the SCART switch shootout video I did. Um, so it's you know, that is the dream setup right there. You know, you don't have to worry. You use composite video as sync. Compatibility with the consoles that you use, you don't really have to worry about. Uh, and uh, the compatibility on the output side, you don't have to worry about because of the G-SCART. So hopefully that clarified things. But if any of it wasn't clear, especially if you're a beginner, and I mean this with love in my heart, I'm not talking down to you, but if anybody who's listening to this is a beginner and anything I said doesn't really make sense, please comment on this video because I will absolutely take what you have to say to heart and try to, because the video isn't finished, I could always re-record any of the audio parts. And if there's any way I could explain this stuff to be clearer to people who are just walking into the scene going, why the heck, what is sync? And why is there three of them? And then what's a sync stripper? And what does any of this mean? I want to make sure to clarify that as best as I possibly can. And I think the visual examples I'll show in the video will help a bit, but if any of my wording needs to be clear, you know, do us all a favor and please let me know so I could get the end of this video that digs into the technical stuff out to explain all of this stuff. Because the goal is that you never have to ask this question in the first place. Uh, I don't think that's possible, but I'm going to try real hard just to make things easier on everybody. So hopefully that was a decent answer. Danny Lodato said they're questioning HDMI modding consoles. Do I think it's going to get to the point where the new train of thought will be to send over the cleanest analog signal possible and let the scaler do all the work, or possibly having every console HDMI modded and having a scaler that would take that digital signal and scale it to 8K or something? Um, so in principle, having your console digital modded so the signal never turns into analog and then sending that to a scaler will technically get you a, cl a cleaner overall image because you don't have any analog interference, but not every console is going to have the ability to be internal digital to digital HDMI modded, and not everybody would want that. So some basic examples, like if you have, um, if you have a TurboGrafx and you do a plug and play RGB solution for it, unless you open it up 
and add the resistor fix or the capacitor fix on it for you're going to get jail bars on the signal i've seen one that didn't but all of them pretty much have some sort of jail bars whereas if you were to pick up the new uh ssd s3 with hdmi output you can get clean output from that because you don't have it skips all of the analog processing so there's zero jail bars so you're not just getting a full digital to digital signal you're getting yourself uh, you're bypassing all of the other crazy interference that would otherwise require a mod so i think in situations like that yes or in the situations like the nes if kevin were to ever add a direct out mode for the hdmi high def ness now you have to mod the nes to get the best signals possible anyway so why not mod it for hdmi and let your scaler do the work but i just don't think that's going to be the best or i don't think it would be worth it in every single scenario maybe one day when we plug into the matrix and we you know analog interference right in our eyeballs is going to go crazy but at that point, I think everything would be FPGA recreated, and you, that's how you would be gaming it that way anyway. So um, I don't think the main train of thought will be to HDMI mod everything just to go into a scaler, but I do think in the situations of wherever it's available, that would probably be a good uh, a good way to go about doing it. Scanline City said, now that the RetroTINK 5X and the Xbox HDMI is out, what would currently be the best option for Xbox on a flat screen? Um, That's an interesting question, and that kind of ties into a bit of what I just talked about. Uh, I guess technically the best solution would be the Xbox HDMI through either the OSSC Pro or Morph, uh, neither of which are released, but both are advertising HDMI inputs, because that would technically allow you to have a digital to digital mod and then scaled from there on but those are not available and not everybody wants to go through the trouble of hdmi modding your console so running quality component cables through the RetroTank 5x will let you scale it to a bunch of different resolutions uh, and even add scan lines i believe too so it's that would technically be the better option today the only other thing to throw on top of that is if you happen to have a tv like a bunch of old plasmas that scales 480p really nicely or somehow you're using a 480p monitor or something uh, i mean that would always be a great option as well so i think in the context of your exact question of what's better you know unmodded xbox through the tink 5x or hdmi modding your total solution is what should dictate that. Do you have a whole bunch of other analog video consoles? Just grab a component video switch like the G-Comp, plug your Xbox into that, and just add that as part of your signal chain. Is everything else in your console or in your setup an HDMI console? And especially if you have the ability to mod, I don't know if I would tell you to buy a RetroTINK 5X just for the Xbox when there's an HDMI mod and you could use that clean HDMI signal in the future with other scalers. So I would let your total situation determine that as well as your ability to mod or your budget and stuff like that and kind of just step back and look at it from a whole. Hector Santana had kind of just a test it and find out type of question. If they have a RetroTINK 5X in a Toro box for the Dreamcast, would sending the VGA signal to a SCART adapter and then the RetroTINK yield the same result as the Toro's SCART signal connected directly to the RetroTINK? Um, so the short answer is no, it'll be the exact same. The more detailed answer is anytime you have an analog video signal, 
the longer the cable or the, the longer of the full chain in any device you put in the chain will lower the quality. Now, by lower the quality, I mean in the situation you're just talking about, if you're using a shielded cable and the right adapters, you'd have to zoom in like 10,000 times and you might not even see the difference. But if you're using a crappy cable, you'd see the difference right away. So that's kind of, uh, it's a, it's a fun thing to ask like, Hey, you know, what if, but, uh, I just think that whenever you're talking about analog video signals, keep it as short as possible with the least amount of stuff in between just as a general rule. Uh, also in theory, could it be possible for there to be a better SCART signal out of the Dreamcast than what the Toro provides? I mean, same kind of splitting hair scenario. And I appreciate the question because it's questions like this that kept me up at night when I was starting retro RGB, but same thing, you know, it, how well is the Toro shielded versus the retro access coax SCART cables? Um, you know, and if they're exactly shielded, if the retro access cable shielded a little bit better, theoretically, you could produce a better picture. But if the if they're identical, having the Toro connected through like like a SCART coupler directly into the side of the uh, RetroTINK 5X, same thing. Zoom in 10,000 times, and if you've removed four feet from the length, then you know maybe you could technically say it was improved. I, I don't know, but they're fun questions to ask. Uh, but they're also worth asking because it's totally possible that you used something that you bought 10 years ago and it's like, hey, I have this thing that I bought 10 years ago. Is there a new solution out that's better? So uh, it's a very good question to ask and they're kind of fun questions to answer. But the real the real life answer to your question is if you have a Toro and it's working fine, I wouldn't bother upgrading ever. I think that's a totally great solution. And the RetroTINK 5X does a great job with Dreamcast. Just remember to update the firmware so you get the, the advantage of that new mode with the correct aspect ratio and all the other stuff. Jonathan Warren wants to know, how much latency is too much latency? I guess in the full context of console, scalar, TV. And I'll give you the short answer and then go back and elaborate because this is not an easy one to answer. But basically, your average gamer can't really detect two frames of lag in any scenario. People who are more sensitive to lag or more pro gamer style could detect about a frame, but it doesn't often even affect their gameplay. They just kind of have to adjust around it. And even the most hardcore, best of the best players through tests and measurement can't detect half a frame or less, so eight milliseconds or less. Coincidentally, there's one group of fighting game players that play one specific game that are all convinced that two milliseconds of lag will ruin your game if you have it. I'm pretty sure what happened there is somebody confused milliseconds and frames. So e even if it was unintentional, I do this. I just re-recorded this section because I said frames instead of milliseconds. So it happens. It's, it could have been an honest mistake where they meant, oh, two frames of lag. I, you know, it's too much for me for my fighting game, which is fair. And I think maybe they said milliseconds by accident and then a whole bunch of people repeat it. But there's a whole bunch of players of this one game that tell me all the time that two milliseconds of lag is too much. It's not true. Absolutely not true. So to elaborate a little bit more on the two frames part, though, because that's where things get kind of... There's no scenario in which half a frame of less in any setup would cause any problems. And with one frame of lag or less, eh, I mean... I think everybody would be cool with it, even in any setup, in any environment. But once you start to talk about two frames of lag, then you start to talk about what kind of lag is there, where does it come from, and how does it affect your gameplay? So if it's something like your TV has 20 milliseconds of lag and your scaler has 
16 milliseconds of lag. You know, it's just over two frames, but they're not really going to change. You could hold a time sleuth up to each one of the bars for hours, and they're not, they're probably going to cycle microseconds, but never really even milliseconds. Uh, so having solid latency like that, that is always two frames is something that even pro gamers could adjust to. It's still not something that you would want to use in a tournament because you have everybody practicing on one setup and now you're going to change that setup. That's not fair to anybody. But as far as casual gaming goes or their own setups, two frames is usually fine. The problem is when you get variable lag. So you have these scalers that are designed for TV signals, not for video games. So you have a variable buffer going on there, which I've showed in a bunch of videos, on top of extra latency. So like that SCART to HDMI adapter um, has, or I guess the better one is the level hike cable, because that one had 80 milliseconds of lag, but it was, I think it was between 50 and 80. So at the beginning, you're already talking about a ton of lag that's that's just too much to get used to for your average player who's used to playing retro games and zero lag. And on top of that, you're adding a variability of a few more frames, which means that every time you go to time your jump, it's going to be different. Whereas that scenario of two frames of lag, solid lag through your TV and let's say your RetroTank 5X in uh, triple buffering mode, you know, and by the way, you could even get that to about a frame and a half if you have a quicker TV. That cheap one that I always show has four, four or five milliseconds total. So in that scenario, you know, you're never going to, you might have to replay the first time that you fall off a jump in Mega Man, but you're pretty much got it. You could, your muscle memory will time it, your body will adjust, but it's absolutely impossible to adjust if there's nothing to adjust to so even if you play that same level a hundred times in a row which phone dork does brilliantly in that video that i always talk about um you're always going to get it, wherever your jump is timed it's going to be a slightly a different spot which means you can't compensate so even though you're talking muscle memory not reaction time then it's nothing that can be programmed because it's always all over the place same thing with emulation. You know, if you have an emulator, even in run-ahead mode on a fast computer that's varying between zero and one, or maybe even zero and two frames of lag, you're probably never going to notice it at all. But if you have emulation lag like the Genesis Mini that ranges between, I think it was three and seven or five and seven frames of lag, yeah, you're definitely going to start to notice that. The only scenario in which you wouldn't is if you're a casual player, you don't have things that are like time jumps on the screen. So, you know, there's obviously different scenarios. If you're playing a turn-by-turn role-playing game, you, 100 frames of lag, you're not going to really even notice. You know, you could, you know, seconds, a couple of seconds maybe, but it, it wouldn't even matter because it's not about reaction time. It's just about choosing your game, like chess or Monopoly, same thing, right? So... That's kind of the the talk about latency. Too much is too much variable. You don't really want to ever go two frames of variable lag um, on top of anything else that's there. But I guess two frames is a really two frames or you know thirty ish milliseconds is about what your average person would detect uh, or over that. And then about one frame, 16 milliseconds should be good for pretty much everybody. The only other time would be if you have electronic devices that rely on it, like light guns or 3D glasses and stuff like that. 
So overall, I think it's it's kind of complicated, but hopefully I was able to sum it up without too much word vomit in here. Uh, I'd be happy to elaborate more if you had like a specific area of lag that you wanted to talk about uh, or, or any kind of relevance to a specific setup. But I think that generalization should be pretty good. I think the only other thing to remember is that when you're talking about gaming, you're you're not really talking about reaction time because reaction time is like like the slap game that I'm sure every kid played all over the planet where like you hold your hands out and like the person one person tries to slap your hands and if you're fast enough to move your hands out of the way that's reaction time that's using your eyes and your hands and your body to to react to something whereas when you start to get good at a video game it's mostly muscle memory so while there are reactions on the screen and while there are things that you have to to look and see and feel those motions you don't consciously think okay, move my thumb to hit button A while other thumb is pushing down on, like, it just becomes part of muscle memory, which is why you could detect things like milliseconds of lag, where milliseconds of reaction time is much, much wider of a scope. So uh, I think I put that in a decent perspective, but please let me know if I didn't, because I'm going to have to go back and do another lag video at some point anyway, and I want to make sure I get it right. Couple of questions from DW623. First, is there a smaller game bit screwdriver than the 3.8 millimeter? They tried to open the Shantae Game Boy Color Repro cartridge from Limited Run, and their screwdriver seems like it's too big for the screw. They tried to reach out to Limited Run Games, but the best they got from them was, we don't have any info because it'll void your warranty. Try your local hardware store. Um, you know, I don't know what they're using. Maybe they used something custom. I don't know why they would use anything other than either exactly what you find on other Game Boy carts or just a Phillips head or something. So you could just try getting one of those toolkits from Amazon. I linked to them in the tools page that has every bit on it. And maybe you could find one that'll fit. Or if anybody knows specifically what it is that they used, you know, maybe let me know. But yeah, I think you're kind of on your own on this one, just trying to find a tool bit. Uh, other question, do I think there will ever be replacement disk drives for retro consoles. So that's kind of a complicated question because quantity here is the problem. So if you're making an optical drive emulator where you remove the original drive and you put this new one in its place, you could use all brand new parts. Like in the case of the GameCube, you buy your GC loader, you unplug your th your optical drive, you plug this right into the slot and you're done. So you don't need anything that's that's old stock that you have to go find. Whereas if you want to have a replacement drive that's brand new, you either need to find stock of all the parts somewhere and then reassemble them, configure them, and ship them out, or you need to make them from scratch. And these optical drive assemblies with the gears and the lasers and all of that were made in a factory where they were churning out tens and hundreds of thousands of them. So if something needed to be spun up from the ground up to make another couple of these, they'd probably cost like 500 bucks each because you'd have to individually make every part of this thing. So if you could still find new old stock of the parts used to make them, yeah, I mean, somebody would probably look into making them. I think it's a good idea because while I love ODEs and that's how I play my games, I think there's something to be said for preserving the original experience. And I think some people would do t things like, hey, I play all my GameCube games on Dolphin through my $3,000 PC on my 4K monitor, but sometimes I just want to plug it into a CRT and have the same feeling I had growing up. So I totally understand both sides of that, but 
um, I just don't think we're going to see anything like that unless new old stock is found and, and refurbished just for the the amount of effort and cost it would take to spin one of these up from the ground up. Kairu43 said, in regards to the upcoming VGA Descartes solution, is 720p supported? Yeah, definitely. And in fact, this is exactly how I used it. I have this cheap HDMI to VGA adapter, uh, and then that's going into uh, this the same SCART adapter I've been showing you for a while now, and it works perfectly. It, um, I haven't tried higher than 720p. I don't think there's a need for that, but 720, 480p, and 480i and 240p all seemed to work through the converters that I used, and I think that's the exact solution that you were looking for. Rather than have a component video, so you have you know more cables to deal with, you use VGA and then just use the converter at the end. So HDMI to, com- uh, to VGA as opposed to HDMI to component. Um, the only reason you don't really see this as part of the SCART standard is because they never really did 480p through SCART, but the RetroTINK 5X and the OSSC could both use it. I'm sure all of the up, um, the upcoming scalers could do 480p over SCART. And BVM certain BVMs and PVMs, can do higher resolutions over RGBS. So you're just converting SCART to that anyway. So, um, yeah, that's, uh, you know, there's no, there's no changing of the RGB lines, which is why you don't have to worry about color compression or anything. This converter is only passing those through and then converting horizontal and vertical sync to C-sync with a basic XNOR circuit. So there should be no, basically if something would have worked, uh, it was going to through a normal plug it would work through this anyway just because it's not changing the video signals at all only the sync signals good question though dude dudeson wants to know if it's possible to use a gbs control to convert a dreamcast's vga signal to component video for use in the retro tank 5x so dreamcast vga cable into the gbsc um switch the software so it's just a pass-through, but then switch it to component video output, and then use a VGA to component pass-through cable, not a converter on the outside. Um, It should be possible. Uh, Dude said that they attempted it, but the RetroTINK 5X didn't display a signal. Everything should be fine in that scenario. The only thing I would add is I would not suggest somebody builds that uh, the GBS control for this purpose. Um, you know, there, there's other ways around this, including just using the the SCART adapter that I just talked about for the Dreamcast. But I understand the situation of hey, I already have a GBSC and I already have a VGA to component converter and I already you know checked the info on it and it should work. I can't understand why it wouldn't work other than maybe the software connection wasn't working right. There's been a few times I've had to reboot the GBSC and then press the button and then it worked. And that's gotten better with the new firmware with the new UI. So maybe uh, if you want to just utilize parts you already have, re-update the the full GBSC software with the new UI and kind of give that one a try and see what happens. Should work fine, but I would definitely think a, a passive adapter and using SCART uh, or, you know, waiting for the Dreamcast HD Retrovision cables, which we've all been waiting for for the last 900 years, that would obviously be the best solution. Or, of course, you could always try to go from uh, VGA to component, but I'm not sure. Maybe LinuxBot 3000 sells a separate device for that. I would just try to get one that's focused on retro gaming products. So Kayak wanted to clarify that last week they asked how to make cables to connect to an arcade power supply, and they wanted clarifications like, why do two cables sometimes connect to one terminal? 
So basically, when you're using an arcade power supply, whether you're wiring it for use with a super gun or something else, you just need good the correct thickness cable going to the screw terminal. So you don't want to use super thin conductive cable. You want to make sure to use the correct thickness. You don't need some giant, you know, huge power cable. You just want to make some, make sure that you have something with enough conductors on the inside that's covered with some kind of rubber. So no, just, you know, no exposed conductors. You just want to prevent shorts and stuff like that. But that's pretty much it. When you see things like two cables connected to one terminal, sometimes depending on the cable, people like to double up on grounds just to uh, just to have more grounds. In many cases, like in the inside of my mini arcade machines, I have multiple stuff connecting it. So I have all of the power outputs going to the arcade board, but I also have a ground and five volt wire going to like a fan or something to, to cool it off or the front LED power buttons. So that might be why you sometimes see it. Uh, sometimes people like to color code them. Other times people use all the same color wire. So they're, they're really, when you asked if there's a resource to learn how to make them, no, because it, it, it is as straightforward as it looks. If you have something labeled 12 volts, you have to connect that to the 12 volt line. If you want to do something fancy like the fork connectors, try to find crimping tools, uh, you know, depending on what kind of fork you want to use. But the only thing you really need to know is you just got to make sure to put 12 volt to 12 volt, 5 volt, or negative 5 volt to negative 5 volt, 5 volt to 5 volt. Everything matches. There's no crossover like a network cable or anything like that. So, I mean, I would I would just make sure to use cable that's thick enough, and that's pretty much it. Um, so hopefully I, I answered that correctly this time. I'm so sorry if I'm still not quite getting it, but please let me know. Couple of questions from Jason Guffey. First, a while back, I talked with John Linneman about potentially setting some modern consoles to lower resolutions to maybe get better frame rates out of them. And in the case of some PlayStation 3 games, setting it to 480p will get you a higher frame rate. And a lot of these games are always rendered at the full resolution you're outputting. So we talked about maybe coming up with a database of games that would benefit from that, but we never did. And I think that's something that we could swing back around to once retro gaming scalers with HDMI inputs start to come out, uh, which should be this year or early next year or something. So that I think that's going to change things because then you, you're not just letting your TV scale a lower resolution image. You're putting it through a device that's designed specifically to tackle stuff like that. So we'll swing back around to it whenever those are released and maybe the wiki, wiki will be up by then. Um, also, uh, you wanted to know, is now a good time to pick up a Sega Saturn? Prices are all over the place for everything these days. I've I've seen stuff online go for an insane amount of money and then two weeks later go down to a very reasonable price and then go back up again. So if you really want to try a Sega Saturn, try to find one in good condition and you should you should be okay. Also, there's an they have an RGB modded N64 that works with a Rad 2X, but does not work with a, a SCART cable that they picked up. So my guess is the SCART cable syncs on C-Sync. The Rad 2X syncs on composite video, and the RGB mod for the N64 didn't didn't include the C-Sync mod or didn't do it right. That's just a guess, but this is yet another reason why so many people say just get sync on composite video cables because you would not have to worry about in this situation. And if you ever needed to test that theory, all you would then have to do is just plug in a composite video cable if you get video on the screen, then composite's working, so it's something to do with the cable or the mod itself. Um, but in your situation, that would be my guess. So pop the console open and mod it for C-Sync, 
uh, or uh, potentially get a different cable. Or if you're if you're not going to be using S video cables, you could jump Luma to uh, to C sync, and that should be okay. But you could all you would also have to make sure there's no other components in there. So I would just complete the mod and make sure that the C sync line is there. Uh, lastly, how does HD Retrovision get component video from consoles that didn't support it? There are many custom circuits inside each of those cables that convert RGB to component video. So that's kind of the other reason why that component versus SCART debate annoyed me a few weeks ago because it's get, taking the same RGB signal that you get from a SCART cable and it's converting them to component video specific to each console, which is why you get such good performance out of those and why it's equal to or better than SCART because what if you compare it to a crappy, junky SCART cable? But basically, there it's just a converter inside and if you use a high quality rgb SCART cable and an hd retrovision your output's pretty much going to be identical there's a little bit of low pass filtering in the hd retrovisions so you could argue that those are better in some scenarios and and maybe zero zero or you know point zero 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 one percent not as good in other scenarios but in all even in my video comparisons i do a good RGB SCART cable and an HD retrovision cable are going to be identical in performance. It's just full functionality and stuff like you would never have to worry about sync because those would use uh, the composite video for sync as well so that you don't have to deal with that stuff. So hopefully that puts it all into perspective. Well, that's it for this time. As always, thank you so much to everybody that supports in any way possible. It is your support that is keeping all of these videos, the behind the scenes research and everything else going. So thank you all very much and I'll see you next week.